it's not as easy to make money on the front end as it used to be. You need to be able to have more funding, in my opinion, in order to earn from the lifetime value, not from the front end. So I think the game isn't so relevant for like small players today. You should enter the e-commerce game with a, a bit more brand in mind and more capital than you used to have back in the days. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting-edge marketing strategies and tactics that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass with Paris Talks Marketing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today, my guest is Yaron Bean. And Yaron is an e-commerce entrepreneur, a growth coach, and an industrial engineer with a passion for helping businesses succeed. In addition to his professional pursuits, Yaron is also passionate about stoic philosophy, personal development, and bodybuilding, with a track record of bootstrapping and scaling seven-figure e-commerce stores while traveling the world. Yaron has a wealth of experience to share with our listeners. So welcome to the show, Yaron. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Same here. Before we get into the business side of things, I'm fascinated by the combined interests of Stoic philosophy, personal development, and bodybuilding. Is there any common thread among those three things that drives you? It's a great question. I love that you got started with that. Uh, it's actually more interesting to me than business. Business is just a derivative of life. And all these fields, in my opinion, are just a microcosmos of life. So mm -hmm. after I did my first bodybuilding show, which was the first and last for the moment, two years ago, I actually wrote a blog post about the universal principles that I learned mm -hmm. in the bodybuilding show. So yeah, these also relate to life and business. So for example, having a coach and, or a mentor. And when you have a coach or a mentor, one of the most important things is that they hold you accountable because most of the mm -hmm. stuff you know, but you just need to be reminded and held accountable to what you have to do. Yeah. Okay, so this was one principle from bodybuilding. And that's another principle is tracking religiously. So every week I had to send a, a photo of my progress and every day I wrote down my weight. And mm -hmm. same goes to, to stoicism. If you journal every day, you're able to become more stoic to a certain degree because mm -hmm. anticipate what is going to happen and things don't disturb you as much. And this is also related to business because if you track your KPIs, your conversion rates, your visas, etc. So you're not caught off guard and you make sure that you're progressing. So this is yeah. it in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, do you journal every day? I, so I used to journal and it was very, very helpful. I did it for almost 10 years. About 20 months ago, my daughter was born and time has become more scarce. Mm. So I don't journal as religiously, but I would like to. Yeah. It's something that I've tried to, I've tried even as recently as a few months ago, and I haven't been able to stick with it, unfortunately. So I think it's very valuable. Yeah. In my I had, I had never really made the connection between daily journaling and this, uh, but I do, I do get it. I mean, the ability to 
when when you reflect that frequently on things that are happening and your your state of mind, your emotions, I think that can help you to anticipate things as well. Yeah, so one of the main principles in Stoicism is uh, negative visualization, mm-hmm. which is basically anticipating the worst. So Marcus Aurelius, he's a famous Roman emperor, and he was uh, one of the most famous uh, Stoic philosophers, mm-hmm. and he had a journal. Basically, his journal is uh, one of the most important Stoic readings that you can read, and it's a daily journal that he wrote to himself. And he mm-hmm. wrote to himself, today you're going to meet a, a thief, a stupid person, and someone is going to cut you in line. And this is exactly what I'm saying to myself before I get the day going, because stuff is going to happen. Someone might block me. Someone might accuse me on something. So things can come up. Life isn't smooth. But if you anticipate and realize what is within your control, which is basically your perception of things, and what is not within your control, like how people are going to behave, so yeah. to me, it feels better. So this is the power of journaling. You start the morning anticipating how shit can go wrong. And then yeah. When shit happens, you, you're not surprised. Yeah, excellent. Well, I, I guess we, we do need to transition into the, the sure. more boring business stuff, but it's not, it's not so boring really because sure. your story, I believe, is the envy of so many people. I want to hear about this combination of coming up with a, with a recipe or a formula for launching an e-commerce business that you can run remotely and then being able to lead the digital nomad lifestyle. Tell me more about this. Uh, let's start with the e-commerce side. W- what are the steps that you took? And I know that you've, you've been through this now multiple times. Mm-hmm. So you probably do have some patterns and formulas. Can For you sure. share some of that with us? For sure. So I do think there are principles, but it's not as if you do, unfortunately, it's not as if you do one, two, three, four, and you, you're going to hit your goals. So sorry. Mm-hmm. I know, I mean, Many podcast guests or people, they sell the dream and they sell clarity, but in life and business, there's no clarity. It's about the trial and error. And mm-hmm. with regards to my own story, so after I finished my degree as an industrial engineer and I started working in a media buying agency in Israel, I was spending approximately $1 million on a monthly basis for like gaming and social casino, stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how I'm how I will quit the rat race. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, I sat with a friend of mine, a shadow friend of mine, and he showed me like a screenshot of his Shopify store. And he told me that he was making money. And I was shocked because until that moment, I thought it was like just BS at goods or selling like courses, mm-hmm. but nobody's really succeeding in e So, but it was a childhood friend of mine. So I had to give it a go. The morning after my wife and I, we built a week store, shitty store. And the same evening, we got a first sale. And I was like, my mind was blowing. I realized that I can make money online. Uh, luckily, I was, I was spending so much money in my, my day job. So I had confidence in order to spend more money on my own store. So mm-hmm. after like three or four months, we were already making more money in our store on a daily basis and both our salaries combined, like my wife and I. Mm-hmm. So, but we, it was very volatile. So we didn't quit our jobs for like two years until we mm-hmm. felt, okay, it's, it's not volatile anymore. It, we got it a bit stabilized. And then we quit our jobs and we, we started doing the digital nomad thing and we left to Thailand. And since then, I already done a lot of mistakes and I learned a lot. If I need to like answer your question, so I think it boils down to seeing what works, adapting to your own style, and then just trial and error as fast mm-hmm. as possible. Yeah. Uh, for me, velocity is everything. Like just yeah. doing a lot of stuff really, really fast. And from the volume, you already get the conclusions and you self-correct. Right. Do you get what I, I mean? I mean, absolutely. is it clear or? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think I think it's all about speed. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not really a, about the mistakes because it's uh, the faster you go, the faster you will you will make those mistakes and then learn mm-hmm. from them and, and keep iterating. Mm-hmm. How did you go about identifying the niche for e-commerce? Was it something that you had a personal passion in or was it more about doing the research and finding a unique opportunity where the market demand was not being met for some products yeah. or, or goods? So I think it's important to make a distinction between what I did back in the days and what I think is the right approach today. So back mm-hmm. in the days, we were all about speed, just built a general store with a lot of stuff. And they say, you throw shit on the wall and see what sticks. So basically, mm-hmm. that, was, that was the method. We saw someone else running ads for like a specific product. We believed it had a wow factor and it made sense to launch, it, launch ads on Facebook and it might have broad mass appeal. And we just were like testing 10 products every week until we saw better CPAs. And then when we saw good CPAs, we started pushing and pushing and pushing. This was Mm -hmm. basically the method. Today, I don't think it would work as well uh, Mm -hmm. as it used to work back in the day. Today, I see the game has changed. I think it's more of a winner takes it all. So it's not as easy to make money on the front end as it used to be. You need to be able to have more funding, in my opinion, in order to earn from the lifetime value not from the front end. So I think the game isn't so relevant for like small players today. You should enter the e-commerce game with a a bit more brand in mind and more capital than you used to have back in the days. Well, how many e-commerce stores have you actually launched? What we did, we had general stores, WooCommerce, Shopify, and Wix. And basically, whenever we saw traction with a specific product, we all built a dedicated funnel or built a dedicated store for the specific product. And we added crosses and upsells in the niche. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. And in terms of funding, I mean, did, did you take any outside funding or did you bootstrap all, all this yourself? No, we, we bootstrapped everything. And do you think it's, you said today doing this would require some funding. I mean, do you, th- do you think bootstrapping is still an option for entrepreneurs launching I e-commerce think, stores? I, I mean, I, I never... Everything in life is a dichotomy. It's non-binary. So the probability of bootstrapping an e-commerce business is way, way lower, in my opinion, than it was back in the days. You can do it. Is it the smartest way? Is the likelihood of succeeding high? I don't think so. So because you need to spend so much on ads in order because the CPMs are high and customers mm-hmm. are more skeptic. So I, if you have a lot of money and you can bootstrap, that's fine. But I don't think mm-hmm. you can enter the game with like, 5K and uh, you can be helpful, but I don't think you will succeed with uh, 5K yeah. or 10K. Yeah. And these were all on Shopify. Did, did you ever cross-sell on Amazon or build, build a store on Amazon? No, I always uh, did it in my own store because I wanted to have complete control of the funnel and of the retention, which yeah. you don't have in, in, uh, in Amazon game or eBay or right. wherever. Yeah. And, and 100% of your, your revenue. Exactly. Too. Exactly. Yeah. How, how can people make that decision? I mean, clearly, you decided for those reasons. For other people that have an idea and they want to sell online, it might make sense to set up shop in Amazon. Do you have any advice for people that are trying to make that decision? Shopify versus Amazon, basically? Yeah, so it, it, it's a completely different game, uh, in my opinion. So based on the product and your niche, it should kind of give you an idea of where to go. So for example, the distinction that I like making is in Shopify or WooCommerce or whatever, you control everything, but you are also in charge of getting the traffic. Uh, in opposing to the marketplaces, Amazon, Walmart, etc., if you build a store over Amazon, so you get the traffic. 
you get customers with intent of buying. So that becomes a search game. So you need to find products which are high in demand, or at least you must find an opportunity, a product that uh, is not well served. Like you said, the demand doesn't match the supply. So this yeah. is the search intent page, like Walmart, etc. But when it comes to having your own store, you need to be, I think, you should select products that have broad, like mass appeal, and they have some sort of a wow factor. Mm-hmm. Because people are basically scrolling in TikTok or Facebook or whatever. They have zero intent of buying, and you need to show an ad in their feed and convince them to buy. Yeah. So it's going to be pretty hard with just an ordinary cap, I don't know, or, or, or a tent. Unless it has a gimmick, it can go very well in Amazon just because of the quality. But if it's for your own store, you need to have some sort of a gimmick to convince them to actually click. This is the, one of the major distinctions. And another thing to keep in mind that in the Amazon game, you are competing with a lot of players and you're competing about price as well. So mm-hmm. it's harder to create a category of one and because everybody compares you with the competitors, which are basically in the same page as you are. In posing yeah. to your own store, you control everything and you don't have to necessarily compete on price. So yeah. this is completely changes the, the angles that you can use for your marketing. Yeah, I, I think it comes down to satisfying existing demand versus uh, discovery commerce, which is what Facebook mm-hmm. calls it, where people are not in market and then they're not searching for something, but they get the, the wow factor, as you called it. Something makes, the, makes them stop scrolling their feed and they say, well, what is that? Let me check that out. And usually the price points are not so high either, where you can have a kind of a frivolous purchase, unplanned, uh, non-discretionary purchase. And it could just be a cool a cool new brand that, that you check out. And I think especially on Instagram, this works really well. I know my own behavior, I get siphoned off of, of Instagram quite often with these type of discovery oh, yeah. commerce, things that I would never have Google searched for or searched in Amazon. Yeah, but that's a good way to, to differentiate the two if, if people are deciding where, where should I go, which direction. Mm-hmm. And I want to now talk about, about funnels. And you did mention that having control over your funnel is, is one of the benefits of, of running your own e-com store. First of all, for, for the uninitiated, what, what do you mean by a funnel? And can you describe some of the funnels that you found have worked really well for your e-com stores? Um, yes. Yeah, so how do I define a funnel? So funnel is basically just like the customer journey from the moment he saw your ad or first interaction with you until the moment mm-hmm. he purchased. And some even consider the funnel after the moment he purchased. So basically mm-hmm. funnel is the whole interaction that the customer has with your product. Uh, when it comes to e-commerce or coaching or whatever, usually when people say funnel, they relate to the, the landing page, the first page, mm-hmm. then the card page, if it exists and then the checkout page, and then the thank you page. This is kind of like the most, uh, I don't know, straightforward definition. The conversion funnel, maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But there are also other types of funnels. There is a longer cycle funnel, like a pre-sale page in which you send traffic to to like an article. From the article, you can send to the checkout, or you can send to the product page. So different ways yeah. to direct your customer in your funnel. And mm-hmm. the goal is to increase the lifetime value of the customer by increasing the conversion rates. So from you, you expect that largest amount of people that from 100 people that visit your funnel, you expect at least, I don't know, five people to buy. Generally speaking, you know, it depends on the product, the price point, et cetera. But if you don't get these five people, conversion rate is lower than five, you know that you need to optimize the funnel. So this is basically like the definition of the funnel. It's very hard to encapsulate mm-hmm. it into something so small. Yeah, I do think that the key differentiator, which is that there's a conversion funnel 
which is really about removing friction from the, the payment process mm -hmm. and getting people smoothly through uh, the point where they intend to buy to, to making the payment and, and then obtaining the, the good. But mm -hmm. the funnel we're talking about is really the, the customer journey mm -hmm. from the moment that they, they, they become aware of your brand. And it could even happen before the first click, even mm -hmm. all the way through to the point where they become a loyal customer and in even perhaps even beyond for customer loyalty and LTV. Exactly. And, and with regards to what I've built, so it really depends on the product, uh, but there are elements mm -hmm. that very often you don't see people use that, in my opinion, they are very valuable for the e-commerce game. So for example, an order bump, um, which is just a, a small banner that you place right above the place order after people filled out their details and the credit card, you have an order bump, which you can offer them like another unit or, or faster shipping or stuff like this. And this in increases the sale by, let's say, $5, like on average. And, and this increases your AOV. And it's like almost easy money because people are already like almost about to click the place order and the likelihood of them not clicking this is not so high. So you can just mm -hmm. get more money. So this is a, yeah. an element that I find crucial, but is overlooked. And also post-purchase upsells, like one-click post-purchase upsells. So after a person bought from you, Instead of just showing a dull thank you page yeah. with the details regarding, you can offer them something similar, like a complimentary product or a digital product or more of the same. Why not? They already bought from you. Why not try to give them something valuable and get money for yeah. the values that you're providing? So, and many people overlook this. Uh, so I think these are like very crucial elements that shouldn't be overlooked in like a basic e-commerce funnel. Mm -hmm. And w one of the notes that I have here is that you, you've been successful with something called a quiz funnel. What, what's a quiz funnel? How does that work? Yeah, so a quiz funnel it has always been around, but mm -hmm. since the changes in privacy, like uh, the iOS update, stuff like this, it has become even more relevant because we don't have, neither us nor do the platform like Google or Facebook have as much data as they used to have regarding the customers. So a quiz funnel it's just basically a quiz uh, in which you send your customers to a quiz and you ask them as many questions as possible without being annoying. And then you gather the data that is useful for you for your remarketing, for product research, for engaging with them, for showing them social proof. So for example, let's say there is a famous uh, diet uh, solution. It's called Noom. They have a quiz funnel. It's about 200 questions, but it's built amazingly. And basically what they... Yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's so good. I mean, you would think like 200, how do people complete it? But it's so engaging because like you start, they ask you for some basic information. So what is your height? What is your weight? What is your gender? Straightforward. They put it in, in like the CRM. Then they ask you, what is your weight? Then they show you like a projection of uh, if, there, if you have a specific goal, do you want to be like 20 kilos less by your wedding? So you fill it out and mm -hmm. then they show you a projection. And then they show you a testimonial. Then they ask you more questions and they tell you why these questions are so important. And they mm -hmm. just keep you engaged and engaged. And it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. I really suggest that uh, listeners check it out. But at the end of the day, buyers feel less suspicious because they feel that they, they are being understood, that the solution that is provided by this company is personalized and tailored to their attributes and needs. This is yeah. one thing. The other thing, they are so engaged, so it's, it would be funny after you filled out, like, uh, sit 20 minutes on the quiz panel saying no now. It kind of feels stupid because it's some cost. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next thing is the fact that they can afterwards segment these people and they can try to convince them 
based on their attributes, you know, just address their objections. If they know what are their goals and their genders, they can send specific SMS or emails to them and really try to convince them in case they didn't convert. That's really fascinating. I, I think of this as, as zero-party data throw around. And I think as we move into this privacy concerns and privacy regulations that are being more and more baked into all the ad platforms that led by Apple, we're going to have to get this data by asking people mm -hmm. for it, either before or during or after they become customers. But this concept of zero-party data through a quiz format which I really like, is uh, getting people to volunteer their information in order to personalize their experience. A lot of people I've seen, especially in the SaaS world, if, if you have a product-led growth flow where you're trying to get people to sign up and start using something, most people think, let's make it as fast and easy as possible. So let's require as little data and as, as few form fields as needed. But actually, that, that process of volunteering zero-party data, if you believe as a user that this is going to help personalize my experience and improve my product experience, you don't hurt the conversion rate. You actually help the conversion exactly. rate. And then you capture that data and then you can use that data to immediately segment those audiences or those users. And then even further, you can, you can use that zero-party data for even predictive analytics in acquisition. Agree. And, and so the quiz, doesn't a quiz need some kind of a a reward at the end or some kind of a prize or a, how is it I mean, set up? Anything should be tested. Okay. But, uh, you know, I have had so many assumptions in my life and I've built so many, you know, uh, split tests and I was wrong so many times. So I, I know anything should be tested. Yeah. That being said, maybe the best practice is, like you said, the customer must think that it makes sense for him to volunteer and put the effort in filling this quiz. So it can either be a reward, like, I don't know, 10% off, or it might be enough to tell them, listen, we need to personalize our solution to your mm -hmm. needs. Yeah. So you might as well give us the truth. I think this can work as well. Uh, there are many ways, like conversion rate tactics, in order to improve the amount of people that finish the quiz. So showing a progress bar, showing them like a social proof. There are a lot of tactics, but it really depends on the customer, where he came from, what is the product that you're selling. I don't think there is right or wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Always got to test. So seeing you've coached and mentored a lot of e-commerce shop owners, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see them making when they set up, launch and run their, their stores? So I think it's funny. Um, I think the most common thing is lack of clarity and it basically boils down to not having a business plan. And I think I also didn't build a business plan back in the days. And I saw success despite of the fact that I didn't have a business plan and not because I didn't have a business plan. And most of people, they don't want to build a business plan because this is what they were forced to do in their corporate job. And this is exactly what they are running away from doing this boring stuff. But yeah. in, in my opinion, it makes a lot of sense to have a business plan. It doesn't take, have to take like two months to build something, but you should sit down and realize what are the resources that you are able to allocate. If it's time, money, what are your skills, what are your projections? Because if you don't have everything laid out, once you start the process and you hit a wall or you, you see some challenges, you might be discouraged. So this is why having a plan, I mean, it's, it's pretty, there is a cliche, failing to plan is planning to fail. So I yeah. think... Lack of lack of planning is the is the worst enemy. It's like the biggest mistake. And I know it, it's not uh, like sexy or not surprising, but it's, it's so easy to overlook lack of planning. So three months plan, subject to change, but have something to start working with. 
Yeah. Also, I believe that having a, a business plan forces you to set goals. And then when you have those goals on paper, it allows you to visualize that goal more and then you can you can strive for that. And I think even getting back to our earlier discussion just about personal development and, and mindset, I think actually being able clearly to see and to visualize in your mind a goal, the body kind of just even sometimes subconsciously will start working itself towards that goal. And a, a business plan to say, this is where I want to be in six months. Here's where I want to be in a year and the research to support it. So it's not just completely a pie in the sky. That's goal setting. And that can help you, sure. help you get there. And mm -hmm. uh, I, there is a famous book about this concept uh, by Maxwell Maltz and uh, Dan yeah. Kennedy. It's called the uh, Psycho-Cybernetics. Uh, yep. I highly recommend it. With regards to tracking, so for me, I have a Google spreadsheet that I track the most important metrics of my life on a daily basis. And I have a graph. So what was my weight this morning? Yeah. How many, what is the amount of cash flow I generated yesterday? What is the conversion rate? And what is the OV yesterday? And mm -hmm. I heard a joke the other day. What is the worst answer for the question? How much did you make yesterday? The worst answer. Well, my first thought is, is it zero? But it's that's probably not the what, yeah. what you're looking for. Let me check. Oh, let me check. Ah, okay. <laughs> you should know. I mean, yeah. the, the 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 idea is you have a few things that are important in your life. I don't know your relationship, your health, and the amount of money that you're making. Let's say this is like the most uh, generic uh, goals people have. So mm -hmm. at least you should know the bottom line of what happened yesterday. So you can self-correct today. So. When people don't know like their conversion rate yesterday or the AOV or how much they made yesterday, how can you progress if you don't know what you did yesterday? Yeah. And one thing that I realized from the period in my life that I didn't do well. So the moments when it becomes hard to track. So the moments that you don't want to step on the scale because you're afraid of seeing how much weight you gain or the moments that you don't want to open your bank account because you're afraid that you lost too much money. This is the most important moment to write everything down and start tracking because it's, mm. it's, just a, it's just a spiral. And if you don't start tracking at that moment that you're most afraid of yeah. looking the data in the eyes, then you're screwed. It will take a lot of time for you to hop back on the horse. So mm. I think this is a crucial moment that luckily I've been, I've suffered enough from lack of tracking to know that I should always track the most important stuff. Yeah. The, the, the more you don't want to do it, the more important it is. Exactly. It. Yeah. Well, otherwise you're just steadily putting blinders on and you're, you're putting your head in the sand, exactly. hoping that if I don't look at it, it's not real. It's not a real problem and it might mm -hmm. go away. No, yeah, you certainly have to face, face these tough moments head on. I mean, I know one, one thing that, we, that I've done for many, many years in my business is to look at cash flow on a weekly basis. And I think for mm -hmm. all entrepreneurs and small business owners, cash flow is everything. And the P&L is, is also important, of course, but you do need to have cash flow to run that business. If that becomes a problem, even if you're profitable, if you don't have cash, you're going to have to stop. And uh, that's been one thing I'm happy to say that I've been tracking on a weekly basis for many, many years. And that allows us to really make sure that these key ratios like working capital ratio remains in, right in that range where we, where we need it to be. And if it slips out of the range, we're not catching it a month later or months later, exactly. but we're, we're catching it within days. And we're saying, all right, this is now, there's a red flag here. We need to see either, I don't know, we need to accelerate some accounts receivable or, or we need to postpone some other payments, but that working capital ratio is not where it needs to be. And this yeah. is what we're going to do in the next one or two days to fix it. it. It actually reminds me of a story. One of like the biggest, you asked regarding the biggest mistakes. So yeah. we were spending back in the days, 
we were spending about 5k on a daily basis just for my own our own pocket on facebook ads and we had a tiny profit margin but i was miscalculating the fees from paypal and the conversion rates we had a tiny profit margin but it was very high volume so i was assuming that we were making like a thousand bucks daily mm-hmm. but i miscalculated something and i felt that then their profits were not reflecting in my bank account. Mm-hmm. So I sat down, I did like, you know, a very diligent analysis. And I realized that I was bleeding 200 bucks on a daily basis and opposing to what I thought, which was making profit yeah. just because of this slight conversion rate. So mm-hmm. tracking precisely is very important, especially when you start scaling, because uh, a small error at large scale can be very, you know, can have a very bad impact. So mm-hmm. I think Tracking, but tracking precisely and not overlooking the hidden fees and all this stuff is also something that I often see like a mistake people are doing. Like they say, yeah. okay, our cost of goods is approximately 25% of the retail price. No, it shouldn't be. If it's 23 or 28, it makes a huge difference. difference. Yeah. yeah, we like to say on conversion rate, a lot of times we point out, hey, we, we do a lot of forecasting for clients and so we'll show them here's what we think is going to be average cost per click, um, impression share, and then we get to conversion rate. And it's eye-opening when we show them, look, if we can improve with better landing pages, if we can improve this 3% conversion rate to 5%, look what that does to the, in this case, for SaaS businesses, they might care about the cost per sales qualified lead or cost per demo, but we're cutting that almost in half. And that could be done by simply improving certain elements on the landing page, optimizing the form itself, um, or, or some combination of those things. Conversion rate, I mean, 1% difference at scale is huge. Sure. Give me 1%, yeah. I'm happy. Yeah. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. So let's talk about some of the, the growth hacks and automation that you use, because I think also juggling a lot of stores, uh, I have to assume that, that you've, you've mastered some some automation. What are some of the things that you've been able to automate? Yeah, so I've been actually digging really deep into the world of the automation. And it's more of my focus lately. In like the last two years, I'm mostly helping other businesses with automations. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, I don't, I don't believe the probability of bootstrapping an e-commerce business is very low. And this is a game I didn't want to play since the iOS updates of like 2021. Mm-hmm. So I've been more focused on, on automation. So, and it's also... B2B automation isn't necessarily like only e-commerce automations, but just as an example for e-commerce. So I created a Python script that basically takes, let's say you can take five hooks, five outros, and five uh, elements of social proof of a video. And with one click, it generates all the combinations. So instead of having like one, I don't know, one video, you get five by five by five, which is a huge amount of ads that you can test. So this is just uh, one automation. Uh, I do a lot of automated reach out autom- automation. Let's say I worked with a web free company. So we scraped ETL scan. We took the numbers of wallet. We enriched these uh, numbers, the, the wallets by their ENS, which is the, the Ethereum name server. 
mm-hmm. and then we found these guys on Twitter, and then we sent a DM to them uh, in Twitter, and we invited them to try out our, our business. So I, I just love doing automation and finding interesting solutions uh, in order to scale stuff uh, without spending so much money on ads, because spending mm-hmm. the amounts of money on ads is very stressful especially when you have a small business. I just see that people don't want to spend like 5K from their own pocket on a daily basis. I was stupid because I was spending way more for like in my agency days. So I didn't have the lack of confidence. But yeah. uh, generally speaking, people prefer not spending 5K, even, even small business owners, you know. So this is why I'm more focused on the growth hacking game, which is more cost efficient. Yeah. As soon as you said the word scrape, you really had my attention. I think some of the greatest growth hacks start with scraping something from somewhere. But let's, let's hone in on Facebook now because mm-hmm. you said something interesting, which is that you started to lose confidence in bootstrapping e-commerce mm-hmm. after the iOS changes, which is th- these, these are the changes that dramatically impacted Facebook's, Facebook ads' ability to track and attribute ROI to their advertising platform. And for those who don't know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but really Apple in uh, around the middle of 2021 introduced a new privacy policy where users would need to opt in to tracking. And now most of them have not done that, which means that on Apple devices, Facebook ads, now you're, you're kind of flying blind and you lack the ability to attribute a Facebook ad click to a, to a conversion through Apple right. devices. And so for e-commerce that relied a lot on Facebook ads, they suddenly lost their ability to track the, the return on ad spend. Am I saying this correctly? Yes. Yeah, so, so Facebook has evolved since then. So, mm-hmm. uh, But this is why I mentioned from the get-go that I think it's almost impossible to be profitable on the front end with e-com. Back mm-hmm. in the days, we were profitable on the front end. So the CPA cost per acquisition of a customer was 12 bucks, and we made mm-hmm. 24 bucks. So we were happy. No cash flow mm-hmm. issues. A lot of profit we could, we could scale so you had, to the moon. You had payback. You had instant payback on the acquisition. Yeah, same day. Exactly. I, I, every morning I told my wife, she would just woke up. We did a thousand bucks yesterday. You know, I just told her. Mm-hmm. Yesterday we did 2,000, uh, 2K. It was happy days, you know. But today I don't see any businesses being profitable on the back end, uh, on the front end. Mm-hmm. You spend money to acquire the customer. If you're breaking even, it's good. And I think only people that sell digital products are able to to be break-even on the front end. And mm-hmm. then because you have capital from a VC or private equity or whatever, or from, from your home, so you are able to keep on running ads in order to lose money on the front end, but gain the money back with the retention, the after value of the customer. So this basically goes back to what I said before, that I think if you don't have a ton of money, it doesn't make a lot of sense to bootstrap your e-com business. Yeah. How many e-commerce store owners do you think are optimizing for lifetime value as opposed to just simply measuring the, the immediate return on, uh, on first purchase? I have no idea. I don't know if people, I mean, I'm not sure how many people really solve the lifetime value. You kind of have a ballpark regarding your lifetime value and you're hoping to, be as, uh, to break even on the front end or not lose mm-hmm. a lot of money. And this, this is also why we see, like the, in my opinion, there is a correlation uh, with the rise of subscription-based solutions because, or, yeah. so for example, because this way you are, it allows you to actually keep on collecting money yeah. more easily. And so supplements. It's easier to predict LTV. Exactly. You have a, exactly. you have a recurring, a recurring payment schedule. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't think 
it it has to be a combination. I don't think that nobody is is optimizing for LTV and don't care about the front end. I mean, I I, I believe that people also care about the CAC. They keep the LTV in mind, but I think most of the people still focus on okay, let's try to get the CPA as low as possible, and then everything will will solve itself on, on its own because we are going to have the retention. Yeah, and you've said, or I I think that it's been you've been quoted as saying it's it's more important to build assets. Uh, as opposed to focusing on creating income, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think this is a, this is the main lesson that I learned from this whole uh, iOS update and thing, because we were focused focused on creating cash flow uh, mm. with our dropshipping business. Uh, it was minimal; we didn't have inventory, and we were making good money. Uh, and we like we were traveling the world, didn't work hard. Everything was streamlined, automated. One VA did the customer support. Everything was really perfect, mm-hmm. but we didn't build an asset. And then when the revenue went down because of the iOS update, we didn't have like a, a sufficient brand in order to to gain more customers or tap on the retention. So it was very focused on on generating the income. And this was a mistake because I didn't, I lack experience or I lack like a objective perspective of someone to tell me, listen, you're making money, but you're not saving up for like a rainy day. So this mm-hmm. is why I think it makes more sense to have more long-term thinking, maybe be a bit more patient, but build an asset instead of just trying to generate like cash cow. Yeah. What, is your, what are your thoughts around physical products versus digital products? I mean, both have pros and cons. Digital products is, is fun because there's no cost of goods and no headache of shipping, so no operational headache. Um, so obviously they are more ideal, but because they are like, so easy and so good, there is a, a lot more competition because everybody, nobody wants to handle the, the operations, you know? So, yeah. this, so this is why maybe the opportunity is on the other side, like in the physical. But if you do the physical, which is what we did, you have a lot, way more headache. You have the returns, you have the free PLs, the customs, the shipping, the inventory. It's way, way more headache. So yeah. the barrier to entry is higher, which is good. But it's more of a headache. So there are pros of mm-hmm. cons for both, you know. Yeah, but could could you possibly mix the two? I mean, could you use the digital products to to improve the, the overall business metrics? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to do both. So I know a lot of people are doing digital product on the front end just mm-hmm. to get the customers in, and then selling on the back end. So for example, you can start with giving like a, a diet guide or a diet app or, or like Noom does, and then. Once you know how you have all the data and you bought the customer, mm-hmm. you can start selling them supplements. So this is an example. Yeah. On the other hand, so we were selling like shapers back in the days in a dropshipping in our dropshipping business, and on the back end we sold a consulting session, like styling consulting sessions, because we did a like a customer analysis. We spoke with a few customers, and we realized that most of them they bought this specific shaper for a specific occasion a cruise, a wedding or whatever. So we said, okay, let's sell them like a package. It's not even a digital product, more of a service. We got, we found on Upwork uh, a stylist and we sold them like consultation, consulting session regarding their styling. So this was like a hybrid solution. You know, you sell physical products, you get the data, you get the customer, and then you can do whatever you want. You can sell them to affiliate offer of which is complimentary, or you can give them a service or whatever you want. Yeah. And so most of that after post-acquisition, a lot of that cross-sell, upsell is happening through email marketing. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. And does that, does that still work well in your experience? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
Yeah. I, I mean, they say always the money is in the list. And I overlooked that so long. I thought, ah, it's just bullshit. Let's keep on spending money on Facebook ads. But after spend, Facebook ads went down, I realized, yeah, the money is in the list. And this is an asset you shouldn't overlook. Uh, you want happy buyers. And if they are happy, you can send them via the email. Yeah. Yeah, you can share that. You can share that with the Amazon store owners, huh? <laughs> they, don't have, they don't have lists. Exactly. And that's what they're giving up. Yeah. And 30% of their sales. But then they don't have to do marketing either, exactly. presumably, which is also debatable. Yeah. Well, this has been great, Yaron. Um, what did I not ask you that, that you were hoping that I would ask you? Or, or what else do you think would benefit our audience, particularly people that are considering launching an e-commerce business, either as a side mm-hmm. gig or a primary thing? Um, I think we should end how we started. I think one thing that I did say is that the business is a derivative of who we are. I believe that if you have a learner mindset, and you have someone to hold you accountable, a friend or a coach. And if you track religiously, the likelihood of things not working out, if you persist, is very low. As long yeah. as you persist and you track, you should hit your goals. Yeah. And is the person who holds you accountable, is it your wife? No, it doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> so so I, have, I have two mechanisms. So one mechanism is a friend of mine in which every month we set goals. We use a service that is called Stick. And in this service, you can set your goal and you also put in money. And in case you don't hit your goal, the money is forwarded to an organization that you dislike. So for example, I told my friend, I'm going to be 85 kilograms by the 15th of September, which is tomorrow. I don't know when you're going to launch this, but it's tomorrow basically. Uh And if not, $500 is going to move directly to an organization that I don't want them to get my money. So this Mm -hmm. is why I hit my goal. So this is one accountability mechanism, and the other one is a service like that. that I use. Yeah, and the other one is is a service that I use. They are great. They are called Boss as a Service. Basically, you pay them twenty five bucks per month, and I send them like my to do list every morning, and they just ask me in the evening, okay, did you hit your goals? Pretty straightforward. Never works with a partner. Never try that. Oh, so you just say either you're gonna lose that, or if you didn't hit your goals, you're. No, so to... in this case, you just pay 25 bucks and you can, ask them, they, you can ask them to hold you accountable and, and connect some sort of a mechanism, like I mentioned before with my friend. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you don't have to because they just nag you. Tell them, listen, nag me until I get what, what I told you. And then they, they just, via WhatsApp, they tell you, okay, what's up, your you said that you will edit the podcast. What happened with that? And then you give them like, you tell them what it's post as a service. Yeah, it's, like it's still simple, huh? Why didn't I think about think of that one? Yeah, I think as founders and, and owners of businesses, and I don't have a I don't have a co-founder, so sometimes it is hard to hold myself accountable because sure. there isn't there isn't a person there who I'm committing to who can hold me accountable. Yeah. So for me, this, I tried a ton of things, but these are the two things that uh, have been working for me like in the last six months. Excellent. Well, Yaron, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for being with us and sharing all these great tips. And congratulations on the success. I really enjoyed our chat today. Likewise. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. You too. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.